Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we have our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. Good morning, Dr. Matthew Peter. Morning, Craig. Matthew, this week, New South Wales Extended Lockdown was also joined by Victoria and we've also had the ACT as the Delta variant sweeps across the eastern states of Australia. The voice to vaccine and vaccinate fast is now an entrenched one across the eastern states, but is it having an impact? Well, Craig, our current vaccination rate is just 18% of the population are fully vaccinated, that is, and that's very low by world standards. Uh, For example, Canada and the UK are at around about 60%. Europe, on average, is 53%. The US is also around 50%. But the good news for our vaccination rates is that they're picking up, particularly in New South Wales, and we're now vaccinating about 200,000 people a day. But we need to do better, Craig. If we keep up the current pace, for example, it would take us around about another five months to hit that Doherty herd immunity level of 80% of the population vaccinated. And that would be obviously sometime early in the new year, maybe January or February. But there are two headwinds emerging to uh, higher vaccination rates. One is access to uh, uh, vaccines, particularly Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And the second is uh, vaccination hesitancy, which we also see emerging in other parts of the world. Now, the Sydney and Melbourne lockdowns, however, I think are breaking down that fear of AstraZeneca. You see more people willing to get AstraZeneca. And it's also breaking down uh, vaccine hesitancy. So let's hope for the best going forward, Craig. Yeah, look, and I had my second jab yesterday, Matthew, but I'd probably add a third headwind, and that is that we have not got many children or people under 18 getting vaccinated, and the latest Delta strain is having a particular impact on school children. So perhaps that's a bit of a blind spot for our country. Quite right there, Craig, and it's also the case that that's features emerging overseas as well, and it's also a headwind globally. Staying offshore, Matthew, in countries such as the USA and Israel are now offering vaccine boosters. And whilst the UK are claiming a wall of defence, yet the USA and the UK still have tens of thousands of daily cases of new COVID per day. Is it time to start measuring COVID differently? Well, I think so, Craig. I mean, case rates alone are no longer a good indicator of how well a nation is coping with COVID. Uh, For a long time, case rates were highly correlated with death rates and hospitalisation rates, and hence the need for lockdowns and consequently the damage to the economy. But the rollout of vaccines has now broken that link between case rates, death rates and lockdowns. So countries with high case rates compared to Australia, such as, say, Canada and the Europeans, have very low fatality rates and are able to open their economies at a faster rate than we are, even though uh, we have very low case rates. Now, Bloomberg reports a COVID resilience index, which looks across measures such as case rates and death rates, as well as progress in reopening the economy and quality of life, which, of course, is adversely affected by lockdowns. And that sees Australia fall from near the top of the rankings that it had, say, last year to now to the bottom half. European countries now dominate uh, the top 10. They hold seven places, in fact, Craig, in the top 10. The US also features in the top 10. And as if we compare that 
to six months ago before the vaccine, vaccination rollout, uh, Australia, as I said, but also our East Asian neighbours, we dominated the top 10 and the North Americans, the Europeans were down the bottom. And we're probably seeing the, the outcome of that through our hospital system at the moment, Matthew, as well, and the stress it's under. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights that are shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, I was hoping we could revisit our conversation that we had from earlier this week around the impact of climate change as evidenced through the wildfires raging across Europe and, and North America. Australia's bushfire season is still some time off, but as I say, in the US and Europe, we're seeing some real damage occur. Are we at the precipice of change in the drivers of policy to both social and economic influences? Well, Craig, it's clear uh, that Australia for a long time placed uh, effective climate change policy low on its list of priorities. The rest of the world is rapidly shifting. Climate change policy is a peak priority across the globe now. And just in reference to the bushfires that you mentioned there, that graphic footage of Australia on fire during our 2020 bushfires, it shocked the world. It shocked the world both in terms of the dramatic impact of climate change that it demonstrated or portrayed, but also how a country like us, who appeared to be blasé on climate change due to economic convenience, could be punished for ignoring global warming. Now, for Europeans to see the same devastating footage on their front doorstep will no doubt accelerate international public opinion on the need for climate action. And if Australia doesn't respond swiftly and meaningfully, we will become increasingly isolated by the international community, both diplomatically and economically. And I thought it was interesting this week, Matthew, that the Sean McAuliffe show predicted a Morrison government election would be called after the boost in vaccination levels, but interestingly, before the next bushfire season. So it shows it shows how this is now becoming part of everyday thinking. Biden, at least, is seemingly aware of that increasing voter interest in climate change. The USA's latest fiscal package, Matthew, is increasingly focused on climate change. This week, Biden had a victory with US Senate passing his $1 trillion infrastructure package by a count of 69 votes to 30. So it begs the question, has Biden started to unify US politics? Well, Craig, if ever there was an issue that could result in bipartisan support in the US, it had to be infrastructure spending. And uh, to his credit, Biden did achieve just that with the bill that, uh, as you say, just passed the Senate. But beyond that, US politics, uh, unfortunately, remains, remains fragmented and not just in terms of Democrats versus uh, Republicans. Look, the main budget bill, leaving aside the uh, infrastructure bill, the main budget uh, resolution uh, that the Democrats are trying to pass is a $3.5 trillion social spending and climate change package. It passed the Senate along with the infrastructure bill, but it passed the Senate along strict party lines in a process called reconciliation. This package will now go back to the House of Representatives and will be tied to the passage of the infrastructure bill. This sets up a situation, Craig, that could see Republicans reject both bills in the House of Representatives. 
But Biden doesn't really have to worry just about the Republican. He and House Leader Nancy Pelosi must also contend with division between progressives and moderates within uh, their own party that could also hold up the passage of the bills, even under simple majority rules of reconciliation. Now, Matthew, we've been stung a little bit in the past on these big packages. When you read the fine print, you find out there's a little bit more to it. So I'm going to ask the question, is the $1 trillion new fiscal spending? No, Craig, it's just over half, $550 billion, which is new spending, while the remainder is uh, simply a reendorsement of public capital works that are already underway. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresight shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, since Biden has taken office, we have seemed to have had trillion dollar packages after trillion dollar fiscal packages announced. Will this latest package have any impact on the overall US yield curve? Well, Craig, this comes back a little bit to uh, what you were just saying about the actual size of these packages. And as I said, the infrastructure package really amounts to new spending of just $55 billion per annum. And that's only 25 basis points a year, hardly enough to shift the dial on growth. And its impact on government debt's even smaller at about half that, adding just 10 basis points per annum to uh, US public sector debt. So the infrastructure package alone won't shift the dial on US interest rates. Now, turning to the uh, larger social spending and climate change package, it's an order of magnitude larger than the infrastructure package. But again, here you must take into account that that spending is partially funded by the government, mainly with tax hikes uh, on the rich and an increase in corporate tax rates. So the debt funding part of the package could be as low as $800 billion over a decade or just $80 billion per annum. Again, this could be reasonably absorbed by debt markets uh, without uh, adversely affecting interest rates. At the same time, by funding it through higher taxes, it takes uh, pressure off growth or takes some of the upside off growth and inflation and hence pressure on interest rates from those channels. However, another lurking risk that could be more dramatic, at least in the short term, than the actual size of those uh, spending packages is that come October or November, the triggering of the US government debt ceiling could see government default on its debt obligations and uh, such a situation would see at least short-run turmoil in, in the US yield curve. Of course, the Republicans won't support a lift in the debt ceiling. It has to be voted on by uh, Congress and the Senate. And that'll force the Democrats to include legislation for a debt ceiling lift into their broader budget resolution packages to pass Congress through the reconciliation progress. Now, The drawback uh, to the Democrats using that measure is it makes them fully responsible for increasing the level of government debt and may tie them also to an explicit debt level rather than just a a period of extension. And both these uh, consequences uh, could backfire politically on the Democrats as they approach the 2022 midterm congressional elections. And Matthew, I've got to highlight it. The $1 trillion package is actually... $55 billion of fiscal spending per year. Interesting. Is this overall package, however, still a new source of supply for our infrastructure, equity and debt investors? Well, the more the government funds infrastructure spending, the more it it actually crowds out private sector financing, both in terms of deal flow 
uh, and pressure on the economy-wide uh, cost of debt. However, the infrastructure gap, more generally speaking, that is the difference between the dollar amount of required infrastructure and the government's capacity to fund that infrastructure, uh, it still remains enormous, Craig, both in the US, in Australia and globally. Rather than the crowding out being the dominant feature, I think it's really giving a renewed focus on the need for infrastructure by governments should open more doors to private sector participation in funding infrastructure projects not covered in government packages. I know part of the criticism of this latest fiscal package, Matthew, was the lack of engagement of the private sector in its funding. Now, Matthew, I promised to somehow skillfully link the wildfires in the north with Biden's infrastructure package. Biden's package, if it passes Congress unchanged, will see public spending on EV charging stations and infrastructure for natural disasters, including wildfires and flooding. Is this likely to be the win-win form of infrastructure, Matthew, going forward? Well, a difficulty with a faster track to reducing carbon emissions and disaster mitigation has typically been the cost of doing so. Infrastructure spending, however, is associated with a strong boost to demand and growth, especially in the initial construction phase. Hence, large infrastructure projects can actually stimulate the economy, at least over the short run. Now, once the projects are up and running, they tend to deliver ongoing economic and financial gains through higher rates of productivity. In the current case, these gains will enable us to achieve lower carbon emissions and mitigate the longer term costs of global warming. That to me, Craig, sounds like a win-win. Thanks, Matthew, again for your insights. In summary, the economic and social need to raise our vaccination rate in Australia is crystal clear. And despite the impact of Delta and other variants spreading across New South Wales and Victoria in particular, we still have a very big job to do to raise the vaccination rate, including overcoming vaccination concern. And whilst the world is consumed by COVID, Are our fiscal budgets and government policy doing enough to combat climate change as we witness yet again raging bushfires across the US and Europe? And whilst Biden's latest package of infrastructure spending on decarbonisation infrastructure is relatively small, it does show global leadership. However, most telling of all is the budget given to dealing with natural disasters, which was one fifth of his overall package. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.